Good morning. I'm going to be reading from John 4, 4 through 30. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on on this mountain, but you Jews claim that, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Thank you. What a powerful story, huh? I, uh, I was challenged this morning as I knew we would be walking through this story. I just wanted us all to have the frame of reference of what the story really was. And so thank you for sharing that. And this is a story a lot of us have heard a lot of times. If you grew up in church, you've heard this story. If you went to Sunday school at any time in your life, you probably 
heard this story. Uh, if you ever watched any Bible program on TV, you probably saw a depiction of this story. So let's all agree that we all have some frame of reference, some context, maybe even a visual of this woman in our mind as we tell this story. What was striking to me about this story as I began to think about this woman's experience is how interesting is it that she was not trying to become famous. She had no intention of becoming famous. She had no intention of some 2,000 years later people telling her story. She was just trying to slip out in the middle of the day when no one should be there to get her basic physical needs met, yet in the middle of a dusty desert next to a well in high noon sun, she had an appointment with the Savior of the world. She had a moment with Jesus that he knew about. He was waiting for her. She was just trying to get through life. She was like, I got this jar. I need some water. I don't want to be out in the daytime when everyone else is out because I got some junk that people know about. And I'm from a small town and people know my story. And so I'm going to escape in the middle of the day when people don't know my story so that I can just kind of get what I need and get out. She was not intending to be famous. She wasn't expecting people to write songs about her and write plays about her and have live action depictions of her. And some 2,000 years later, we're telling the story of this woman who Jesus loved enough to schedule an appointment with her and have one of the most profound, powerful conversations in the entire scriptures. It's the longest one-on-one conversation recorded in scripture that Jesus ever had with this woman who culturally was of no consequence, had no power, no authority, had no just, she was just some lady in the desert trying to get some water. And here comes Jesus. You know, I get excited because I love the power of this story, but but I get excited because I started thinking today and this morning about defining moments. Moments in our lives that we wander into this moment and it's just some other time. It's just some time of the week, some day, something on the schedule, some phone that rang, some appointment that we had. It's just another moment in life. But we leave that moment with some new truth that radically changes our life. There's a before that moment and an after that moment. And we know those things happen. They happen to us. Sometimes they happen. The phone rings. We pick up. And all of a sudden, our life is never going to be the same. We head to the doctors. And we get some information. And it's never going to be the same. We have a conversation with someone. And we know our life's never going to be the same. They're defining moments in our lives. And what I love about Jesus, as we look at his life, and as we look at the stories that he told, and the interactions that he had, he was perfectly comfortable dialoguing with people, having honest conversations about the truth of God, and creating these defining moments with them i have this flashlight in my hands and some of you are looking at it like what is that it's just a flashlight it's tactical so it's kind of cool looking but it's just a flashlight but i was thinking of what a defining moment's kind of like this it's kind of like these moments where the light shines on us and we kind of go ah and our eyes we either do one of two things right we either kind of close our eyes and back off or we wait and our eyes adjust and change because of the circumstance And so time and time again, in Jesus' story, we see he interacts with people, 
and he presents them with the truth about the nature of God, about the character of God, about who his father is, about who his father loves, about how his father loves. He reveals these truths. And depending on the person he interacts with, they either make an adjustment. They realize, oh, I've been thinking this way about this thing. And now I need to change and begin to think this way about this thing. And their eyes adjust or else they withdraw because it's too difficult for them to make that adjustment. They have a preconceived idea about who God is and how he loves and how he works and what he thinks about. And what, you know, sometimes I wonder, what does God think about when God thinks about me? Do you ever have that, that thought? What does God think about when God thinks about me? Does God go, yeah, good job. Or God's like, oh, you know, what, what does he think about when he thinks about me? And here's Jesus and he's having conversations with people who have all across the, the, the spectrum of social standing and education and ethnic diversity and cultural diversity and gender diversity. He's crossing all of these boundaries, having conversations with them. And he's talking about this incredible love of God. And some people receive that and it's like their eyes adjust. They have a defining moment and something becomes different from this point forward. And some people interact with that and they go, ah, this doesn't quite make sense with what I think I understand about God. And they kind of, they reject that and they move on time and time and time again in scripture. So here's this woman, this woman who has a completely diverse ethnic background to Jesus who has a gender issue having a conversation with Jesus a cultural issue a standing in the community issue and she interacts with Jesus and Jesus begins to reveal some truth about what God thinks about when God thinks about us about how God loves and how God thinks about his kids begins to reveal some truth and it challenges and changes everything. And we're 2,000 plus years later. And it's still rocking us today. So I want to challenge you a little bit as we walk through this story. Some of you heard the story a bunch of times. Some of you just heard it. I wanted us to all hear it so I could say this. It would be true for all of us, okay? I didn't want to just assume so that we all kind of knew the story. But I wanted us to hear it so we can say it. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. We're going to walk through the story a little bit this morning. We're going to pull some of these truths about what Jesus really thinks about when he thinks about us. And then we're going to, we're going to pull something out of here that I, I want to really challenge us. So I'm going to actually have us say this together so that we're just all on the same page. But, uh, but here's, uh, before I get to that, what, I, what I'd like for us to just do is I just want you to realize as we go through this story that she doesn't know the end of the story the way we know the end of the story as she has this interaction with Jesus she doesn't know that eventually she's going to be honestly the first evangelist that we see in scripture for Jesus she's going to go to town and tell everybody about this guy who told her everything she ever did. We just saw that, right? She doesn't know that that's going to be the end of her, her new story that's going to change. She doesn't know that that's going to happen. She just knows that there's a guy at this well who's starting a conversation with her who, because of whatever reason, probably shouldn't have a conversation with her, but there's some compassion and empathy and care that comes out of him. That changes. So, so let's all agree, like, we're not going to jump to the end of the story. Let's be in the moment with her a little bit to see how she receives that. And then here's the truth I want you to take away. So if you check out after kind of we get into the word and you're like, man, Pastor Mike's talking for too long. I just want you to remember this. It's okay. You can chuckle at that, right? We're all, we're all in this together. I know I talk a lot. Jesus plus nothing else is enough. Did you hear that? The math equation. Jesus 
plus nothing else is enough. If you don't hear anything else, write that down, text it to yourself. You can Facebook it. You can take credit for it. I don't care. Jesus plus nothing else is enough. You see, he's about to reveal a truth that's going to change the way she thinks. And we see these truths happen all the time. But he's going to let her know, hey, me and nothing else is enough for you. Now, this is hard. This is a hard thing to get our hearts around. I remember the first time I interacted with this truth in like the real world, not just theoretically. I was driving on my way to Bible college. I was 17 years old and I was full of, uh, you know, I can take on the world. I'm going to give God a year and train in Bible college. And then I'm going to go do a career that actually makes some money. And I'll be the guy that sends every kid to camp every year. That was my plan, right? And I was like, I was on fire. I had a good plan. I was going to go give one year to Bible college so that I was like locked in, right? And, uh, all right, I'll just be honest. I, I lived, I grew up at exactly the right time to be a brown guy who could take tests well. Can I just say that, right? Can we, can we be real, right? I, I wasn't the smartest guy, but I was a really good test taker. And so I had, like, access to a lot of opportunities, like the equal kind at that time, right? That was a thing at that point. And so going off to Bible college didn't meet any, didn't like open any special doors, but I was like, all right, Jesus, I'm going to give you one year, one year, and then it will balance out because there's opportunities out there that are equal for a guy that can take tests. And then I'll make a lot of money, pay off this silly year of Bible college. And after that, I will be the guy that everybody loves because I'll just be like, you know, you need to go to camp. You just hit the lottery. I'll be your guy, right? That gets you to camp. That was my plan. So I was excited about that plan. That's as far as I had kind of thought it through. And uh, I was going, I was driving from Northern California up I-5 on my way uh, to Bible College in Eugene, Oregon, uh, basically straight shot up I-5 for me. Uh, I was following my parents, and so they were in one car uh, with my little brother, and then I had my car that I had, uh, I had bought with my money because I was that guy, I was, you know, my Safeway job, I was doing good, and I put some money away, and I had a car, and in my car was everything I cared about. So basically, my computer, you got to go back, it's 96, right? I didn't have cell phone or anything like that, right? <laughs> basically, my computer and like uh, my clothes and some 49er stuff. Come on, guys. <laughs> Woo! Just get it out, get it out, get it out. Let's do it. <laughs> feel it, feel it, I feel it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, burn, burn. That's it. Turn this thing off, I'm out. <laughs> we can have a little fun. So I'm driving in my car, I'm going north on I-5, I'm following my parents, uh, my car is full with everything that I think I need to survive, and all of my stuff, and I'm cruising along, I'm just minding my own business, I'm in the fast lane, I'm following my parents, and all of a sudden I just hear, whack, and I look to the right, and driving over the front of my car are the wheels of an 18-wheeler. He just drove, like I'm cruising, he just drove right over clip the front of my car and then i'm spinning i'm just i'm 17 i won't say what's coming out of my mouth right and then my car like it i don't even know how to explain this there are these big bushes they're oleanders i guess i don't know if you know that right these big giant oleander bushes my car just goes into the bushes and there are 
branches of this bush just going through my car like a like a uh, uh, I don't know an Indiana Jones movie where the spikes come through right it just this lines going through the car and I and I am up I'm in this bush I'm elevated and and I'm just looking at the wheel my car's smashed and I didn't flip over at all I spun this way and just slid right up and everything is just mangled my computer's mangled everything's just messed up dust is everywhere I get out of my car I don't to this day I'll just be honest I don't know how I got out of the car I have no remembrance of being out of the car i was just next to the car and there was a truck and it had pulled over and he had seen what had happened but i thought he had done what had happened and so so i snapped right so i had a moment i I wasn't jesus i was mike okay and i'm just like what are you doing like and what's going through my mind is, is I worked really hard for this car, right? <laughs> you just ruined my stuff, right? That's what's going through. That's all I could see in my head, like red. And he's like, no, no, I just pulled to make sure you're okay. And, you know, ambulance comes and my parents turn around. And, you know, the, the end of the day, the guy kept going, never stopped and never, never found him or anything. And, and uh, we were in Red Bluff, California, close to Redding. I had some family in Redding. And so we drove to Redding. Uh, tow truck driver, you know, took my mangled car away and all my, all my, belongings were just kind of laying on the freeway side and we're picking things up and i'm on my way to bible college to give god my best and i I, you know to give him one year at least and i was like committed (laughs) and i remember i remember this moment looking into my dad's eyes and my dad was just like hey if, if you don't want to do this this is cool we can just go back we can just go home and i remember like my plan just like none of the things I needed to execute my plan existed anymore, right? I didn't have my car. Come on, I'm 17. I didn't have my car. The world's over. I didn't have my computer. What's the point, right? I didn't have any of my things. And I, and I remember the first time I was really challenged in my heart. Like if I didn't have any of my stuff, I'm only 17, but this thing just hits. If I didn't have any of my things, any of what made me feel like I had been successful, things I had worked for, my trophies, come on now, my stuff, I didn't have any of that, would I still still trust Jesus. And I had a moment. At 17, it was the moment where this came alive for me. I had to, mm, I had to feel that. I was sitting at some wrecking yard in Redding, California. It was hot. And it was just, my stuff's like on a tarp. And it's all thrashed. And I'm just like, forget it. And here's this moment with Jesus. Did you hear my voice? Did you know that I had a plan? That I called you? Is that enough? If all your stuff is gone, is that enough? As I've gotten older, we've had different heavy and heavier experiences. But, but is it enough if everything else goes? Is Jesus plus nothing else enough for me? Is that enough for you? So, defining moments. The light clicks and we have to figure it out. We walk into this amazing story of Jesus interacting with this woman and a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Good Samaritan, and if you were here, I talked a little bit about this dynamic relational and cultural tensions that the Jewish culture and the Samaritan culture had essentially about 720 years before uh, Assyria had invaded what became what was Samaria, the northern kingdom, and their plan whenever they invaded was they took people out of that land and then brought people into that land and kind of mixed the races and cultures up, and then they just kind of repopulated a new culture that was loyal to them. And so the Jewish culture for them, that was like an abomination. And so the Jewish culture that had remained primarily Jewish was in the southern part of the kingdom, and so the northern part, they, they were so 
I don't know the right word, so rude towards this community, for lack of a better word. The racial tensions were so heavy that they referred to them as half-breeds. And I, I, I mean, you refer to someone today as a half-breed, you're going to start a fight, okay? Like, that's still a ridiculous way to talk to somebody. And it was just common practice to refer to them this way. And so this culture was a culture that the Jewish community, this is what's crazy. So at the beginning of the story, it says that Jesus is getting ready to go north uh, to Galilee. He's in, uh, he's in the southern kingdom of Judea. He's about to go north. It's about a 70-mile straight line walk that he's got to go if he goes straight through Samaria. But the Jewish community of that time, because they were so unwilling to go even through the lands of the half-breeds that they hated so much, they would double the distance and either go down south and then around the Jordan, which would make it about 150 miles, or they'd go far, far to the, uh, to the east and around, which was still in excess of 100 miles. They would add – now remember, they're walking. They're walking. So they would walk twice the distance just to not set foot in the grounds of the culture of the half-breed, religious, uh, perverted people that they didn't like. That's, that, I just get that in your mind. So think about this. It's about 35 miles from this spot to Seattle. So if you walk to Seattle and back, that's the distance Jesus has to cover in a straight line. But instead, he walks to Seattle back. Seattle back again is what he doesn't do, but what most people would do, rather than just think about that amount of walking. That's crazy walking in the desert. <laughs> so this is how I, I just want you to catch the distinction. So when she has this visceral reaction to why are you talking to me, it's because this is the culture that he lives in in that time. You see, what does God think about when God thinks about us? He doesn't think about some of the boundaries and barriers that you and I think about naturally when we think about people. Because they had some natural, I mean, can we just say racism? They had some natural cultural racist ways of thinking about things and she just assumed that that was normal and jesus just said hey that's that's not what i think about when i think all right you guys are with me okay i'll keep going it got heavy in here so we're going to keep we're going to keep moving through there a little bit so here's this woman the other thing that we know about her she's been married five times now nowadays five times would still be considered like a pretty solid pace of getting married all right. Most of us, I would wager, don't know a person really closely that's been married five times. That's a lot. You might, but five times is, is a lot. I know if you think about the person you know who's been married the most, I mean, five is a lot. Not only has she been married five times, she's currently living with another person. And like, you know, they're ramping up maybe for marriage. We don't know. What's interesting is we don't know why she was married five times. We can, uh, you know, draw some conclusions potentially from the text, but it doesn't tell us. You know, she could have been married five times because... Um, you know, she kept leaving the person that she was with and there could be just a trail of like, you know, broken hearted guys out there and she's just married five times and like done with you moving on. We don't know that she could have been widowed five times. So her husbands could have passed away time after time after time. We don't know that, but you can imagine the stigma if you've been like widowed five times that that could be the case. Yeah, that could be a very interesting We don't know if that's what it is. We don't know if maybe she's been married five times because she's been unable to have children. In that culture, that would be a reason to get a divorce because you're trying to have a son and you marry someone and you don't get pregnant and uh, they they could 
divorce over something like that in that culture. So maybe it's that she hasn't been able to have kids. We're not sure exactly what the reason is, but we can infer from the story that whatever the case is, she has a measure of shame attached to failed relationships, especially her relationships with men. There's something going on there that doesn't seem to work. We just don't know. But here's what we do know. Her life was a little bit unusual. It was messy. It had a lot of stuff going on in there. We know that she could have been up in the morning when most of the women would get up to go to the well and draw water was when it was cooler during the morning. But she didn't want to be in that crowd. For whatever reason, she didn't want to be associated. Now, she's from a relatively small town. I don't know if any of you have small town vibes or maybe just your neighborhood has a small town vibe where you kind of know the stories of the people that you've been doing life with. But the stories that she has, people know. They're visible, obvious stories. So she's avoiding that. She's avoiding the crowd. She's avoiding it to the the place where it's actually potentially a little bit more dangerous. She's out when there's not anybody else around. So she doesn't have the community, the protection of community around her. She doesn't value that versus the uh, risk of being with other people. I mean, it's just not, it's hot, it's dangerous, it's the desert, she's alone. I mean, that's that's a pretty vulnerable place to find yourself in life. And people seem to know her business. The other thing we know is this. She's thirsty. Right? We know that. She needs a drink. She's thirsty. Now, I think we can push on this a lot. I think in our lives, uh, we have physical things that we're thirsty for. But more than that, she's been trying to fill something in her life. She's been trying to fill it with husbands. She's been trying to fill it with relationships. She's been trying. There's a hole in her that she's trying to fill because Jesus is going to tap into this thirst. He's going to stick in this metaphor. He's going to say, you think this is about water, but there's something else that you need that is more important to your life. She's thirsty. How often? Oh, this is going to feel this. I feel this. How often do we have a hard time recognizing what it is in our life that we're thirsting for? And so we try to fill it. Come on now. We try to fill it with whatever physical thing we think will fill it. A little more praise. I'm thirsty for something. A little, a, a little bit more money. I just, that'll solve it. Another relationship, a new relationship, that'll fill it. She's thirsty. There's something in her soul that is empty as her jar that she brings to this interaction with Jesus. I don't know about you. I know what it's like to feel a little thirsty. I feel like, man, things haven't quite got where I want them to get, and I don't know what to do about it. I heard one person say, how often do you drink sand before your thirst is finally quenched? But that's what we do. We try things that can't satisfy us, and we keep doing it in this kind of fruitless attempt to fill whatever it is that's in us that's thirsty. And she's about to uncover a truth. That's the other thing we know. The light is about to shine in her eyes. And the truth is that Jesus plus nothing else is enough. Jesus plus nothing else is enough. Now, we see that the disciples are in town getting food. I was thinking about this. I'm like, how many men does it take to go get the food? (laughs) All of them. (laughs) all of them right the only way it works send them all all the disciples go into town to get the food it seems strange to me that they leave jesus here 
The story opens with Jesus saying he had to go through, Paul, uh, John says, I think it's verse 3, he says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He doesn't give an explanation of why Jesus apparently just communicated, we're on the way, we're going through Samaria. It would have been weird for them to go, okay, I guess we're cutting straight through, we're not going around, whatever. Then they leave him alone at this well so they can go into town to Sikar, the name of the town there, and get the food. But all of them go, they left him by himself, and then we have this long one-on-one conversation. Let me walk us through it just a little bit. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to throw the verses up here. You can follow me. I'm in John chapter 4. We're not going anywhere else today, so you can hang with me. It says, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea. He went back once more to Galilee. Uh, he had to go through Samaria. Verse 4, that's amazing. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because he had a defining moment appointment with someone. They didn't know it. He knew it. So they came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. We know this. Uh, Jesus sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour Uh, So we know it's noon. In verse 7, the Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus interacts with her and says, Will you give me a drink? Because the disciples had gone to town to buy food. Had me thinking about how often we stumble into those defining moments. We're not looking for them, but God knows. He's planned them. We're just doing the things we always do. And the wheels come off, or some truth hits us, and we have to make a decision. How will we respond to this moment. She had a defining moment scheduled by Jesus. She didn't even know it. Can you imagine just the reality of the savior of the world in a dusty desert sitting next to a well waiting for you? I I mean, that just makes me smile. That is insane. The amount of love that God must have to wade through all of the stuff to set an appointment and wait for me. God, I hope I make the appointments. Jesus, help me to make the appointments. All of the things you've got to do and you put time on your schedule to meet with me. You have a story for me just inside of this book and I could take just a few minutes and, and make that appointment. I hope I never miss those appointments. She could have missed this appointment and we never would have heard of her. Now, I was joking around with, with my wife, and we were talking about this. I was like, she didn't know she was going to be famous. And, and, and my wife was like, well, what if she didn't want to be famous? I'm like, well, we didn't get her name. We got her story. So, so she wasn't aiming for that. But, but I just, I don't know. I, I, the goal isn't like to have this, this fame or accolades. It's to have this encounter with Jesus that changes things. That's what I want. I want to get in the presence of God, and I want things to be different. That's what a defining moment does. Jesus is sitting here. What does it mean that he interacts with her? Well, one, it means he was thirsty. So he had an interaction with her. But two, it means a couple things. It means that I'm affirming that you're not someone that I would go out of my way to avoid. Because culturally, this is someone he should have gone out of his way to avoid. Listen, someone in here just needs to hear this. You're not someone that Jesus would go out of his way to avoid. There's not something in your life that says, hey, I'm going to go out of my way. There's not a distance between you and Jesus because of the actions and behaviors of your life that has caused a rift that says, I don't want to be with or near you. Do you hear that? Jesus, by communicating with this woman, sends a truth about the love of God that no one is in a position where he would go out of his way To avoid them, even though culturally, even though ethically, even though all of these things that we put into place to assign worth and value to someone would have disqualified her from even having a conversation with him. He didn't see those same boundaries. She wasn't someone 
Some of you, if you just heard that, then maybe you went to church today. He didn't go out of his way to avoid her. Verse 9, Samaritan woman said to him, hey, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you even ask me for a drink? We don't associate. And Jesus said, ah, if you knew the, what, gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and it would have given you living water, living water. It's a gift that's given. It's not earned. You don't have to earn your gift, do you? Gifts aren't earned. He says, if you knew who it was who was in front of you, you'd understand that this is a gift that's being given. The love of God, a relationship with Jesus, it's not earned. It's a gift that's given. The woman, she pointed out immediately the prejudices. We're not the same faith. We're not the same ethnic background. But Jesus doesn't see what we see. He doesn't see the exterior reasons. And then he goes right to what's bothering her in her heart. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I love that time and time again, people kind of say, well, maybe she was clueless. Maybe she didn't get it. But I, I don't see people interacting with Jesus very often thinking, you know, oh, this is just a casual interaction. I think something deep is happening here. I think there's a connection happening here. And I think she does what a lot of us do when we're presented with the truth of the depth of God's love in the middle of our stuff. We play defense, Right. Give me just the facts of what you want. Let me process this information, but I don't want to let it get into my heart. I just want, I can deal with the information, but I'm going to play defense. She's got, you know, she's playing a little defense with Jesus here. She's like, what are you talking about? You don't have a well, you know, a, a way to draw water from the well. What are you talking about this living water? Some people want to say, well, she didn't get it. I don't think that I see in the text that she doesn't get it. I think that she's trying to flip it to something practical and literal so that he doesn't go deep into her heart. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his flocks and his herd? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, Jesus, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and keep coming down here to draw. She's still going practical with them. She's like, all right. Fine, I'm, I'm buying whatever you're selling, right? Just give it to me so I don't have to come back here again and do this thing again. And then this crazy insensitive moment happens. I was thinking about this, this moment. I, 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 if I did this thing that Jesus is about to do to somebody, that would be considered so offensive. If you did this thing that Jesus is about to do, we would just culturally and relationally, it would just be like the most insensitive thing. You would probably not come back if I had this kind of interaction with you. If I just read your mail and aired your laundry this blatantly, but Jesus is perfectly comfortable talking about what is going on in her heart and in her life because he recognizes that the reason she's thirsty isn't because it's noon and she needs water from the well. There's something in her heart that's broken, that's fragmented. There's a thirst. There's a, I love this idea that there's a, a need in her, that a design in her that only a relationship with God can fill and meet. And he recognizes that's what's really going on here. And in order to get there, we got to be real for just a minute. So Jesus isn't afraid to be real. He's not afraid to have this kind of conversation. He says, hey, go call your husband and come back. See, already he's established that it's okay to have a conversation with her. So he's breaking the relational and cultural bonds. 
That's not the issue. So go call your husband and come back isn't about, uh, you know, we got to make this a proper conversation. No, 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 no. This is about you came to the well thinking you needed one thing, but you didn't bring what you really need. And that's this, this brokenness inside of you. That's what we're working towards. And she you can imagine this conversation. The eyes just going like this. I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you said is just quite true. He says, come on. You know your life has left you thirsty. You know your life has left you. You've been trying to fill it. You've been coming here every day at noon. Maybe just one more trip and I'll feel better. One more time when I don't have to see all those other ladies. Come on, ladies, we know. They're talking about me. One more time to get around this thing. One more time, one more promotion, one more relationship, one more thing. Just one more thing that I think will help me get to the place where I don't feel like something's missing anymore. And Jesus is communicating the truth. Hey, me and nothing else is enough. Me and nothing else. And then I love this because she does, again, she changes the subject. She goes theological on him. And you've been in conversations with people where you've had a transparent, honest moment and you start talking about life and you start saying, hey, what's, man, I just, there's some anger. Do you want to talk about, let's, like, what's the thing? Let's talk. And you're just like, oh, you're getting real with them. And they just flip it to some kind of theological conversation. Like, what about the dinosaurs in the Bible? Like, I don't want to talk about it. Well, you can't prove, you know, let's talk, they're just whatever it is, whatever their defensive thing is to kind of get us off of a personal, intimate connection with the thing that's in their life that's crying out, I'm thirsty for a relationship with Jesus. And they want to get their head in front of their heart and say, I'm playing defense. So she throws a bunch of stuff about you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We're not friends. You can talk to me. You say we should worship here. I say we should worship there. Like, which is it? And he plays along for a minute. He's like, all right, you know, I'll entertain this, but let me get you back to this truth because there's coming a time right now you're wrestling with some things that you haven't cut figured out. That's okay. You know, it's okay that you don't have everything figured out. Do you know, I open this book all the time and go, whoo, I don't have that figured out. Like, let's put that on the shelf. I can't preach that because I'm not sure what in the world Jesus you were doing there. Right. I'm just not sure. Like, I don't know. <laughs> the, the fun ones, right? Like, just come on. You, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just angry on Moses's behalf one time because I was just like, why can't Moses get in the promised land? Do you, I watched the movie. He went through some stuff. Like, can he just get a toe in the promised land? Why? He hit one rock with his staff and you DQ'd him from the promised land? Come on, Lord. Like, I get, I get passionate about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm like there. Someday I'm, I'm going to see Moses. I'm like, dude, I feel you, man. I feel you. He's going to be like, don't worry, you just totally didn't get it. And I'm like, you're right, I didn't get it. But whatever it is, I, I, but, but whatever it is, like we could get tied up in knots. That's a, just a funny one. But we can get tied up in knots on all these things. And Jesus saying, it's not about do you have it together, do you get it? It's about do you understand what you're really thirsting for is a person, not a philosophy, not a structure, not a religious system, not a method of worship. It's a person that you're thirsty for, and it's me. 
That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's what you're thirsty for. So I hear you that you don't know, you know, should we worship this way? Should we have more sound drums, lights, or less of that? Should we sing, you know, current songs or hymns or whatever it is? Should the pastor preach for 10 minutes or 10 hours? I mean, whatever it is that your style is, right? He's saying the structure and the things of how you worship. I get that you care about all that. But that's not what quenches your thirst. It's me. That's what quenches your thirst. You need relationship and appointment and time with me. Me and nothing else is going to be good enough. If we never sing the song that's your favorite song and you have me, that's enough. Right? If pastor never preaches the part of scripture that you really just like, oh, you're up at night wrestling about, but you got relationship with Jesus, that's enough. That's enough. Jesus plus nothing else. He says, the real worshipers, it's going to be spirit and truth, baby. Come on. It's not this system. It's spirit and it's truth. It's relationship and personal. And then she throws one more defensive, like, shot in there. She's like, I know the Christ is going to come and explain it all someday. Right? That's kind of like the final out. Like, I got it. Like, whatever. I got to get out of here, right? He'll explain it someday. And he doesn't let her go. He says, hey. I who speak to you and he. Now, this is huge because you look through the scriptures for another time where he's this obvious about his identity. I mean, he doesn't even want to let Pilate know, and he's had the tar beaten out of him. Right? And he still doesn't want to go on the record for whatever reason to make this, uh, 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 we can go into that some other time, but he's just, it's unusual for him to be this transparent about his identity. But he cares so much about this woman who should be for all accounts of no consequence. He's like, you can't leave this moment without capturing this truth. I'm your guy. I'm the relationship you're looking for. I'm the thing that will fill the void that's in your heart. I'm the one. And I want to do that for you. Then she leaves. Well, no, the disciples show up first, right? They're like, what's going on up here? You know, I don't know what's happening. And it says she leaves and she goes back to town. And she starts gathering people. Remember, this is a woman who earlier wanted no connection to people. Obscurity was her friend, right? Hiding from the attention was the goal of her life. It's one of the few things we know for certain about her. She was avoiding attention. And she walks out of this interaction with Jesus, this defining moment. The light has gone off in her eyes. And it's like, whoa, Jesus cares about me. In my mess, where I'm at, that's crazy. He set an appointment to meet with me. Come and, 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 and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Now, I laughed as I read this because I thought, these people already think they know everything she's ever did. They've heard her story, right? This is a small town. They might not be that impressed with her saying, come see this guy that told me everything I ever did. But something in her tone, some sense of urgency, some sense of pleading, something in her communicated this truth. Come and see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. I was thirsty. And he said, I could have water that will never run out. Come and see. She becomes, he completely changes her identity to the first evangelist. The first one. The first one we see walks into a town. It says they all came out. They all came out. I'm about verse 36 or something like that now. She all, they all came out, and they begin to talk to him. And they begin to interact, and they beg him to stick around. 
Remember, he's on his way somewhere. He's going to see John, his cousin John. That's where he's headed because there's this tension between who's baptizing and who's in kind of the charge of the baptism ministry, right? That's where he's going. But it says he stayed two more days. He stayed two more days. And I think I'm, I'm like around verse 36 or something. And he says, uh, um, 39, uh, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Verse 40 says, so the Samaritans came to him. They urged him to stay with them and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Verse 42, it says, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man is really the savior of the world. They experienced that relationship too. How insane is that? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be challenging for us? I was thinking about this and I, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning. Wouldn't it be challenging for us to really try to think is it, say this, I want to say it correctly. I'm just wondering, is there a behavior that you can be into right now that would cause God to love you less? Do you think there is? Let me ask the flip side, because this is going to be a little harder too. Do you think you can even do something that would cause God to love you more? Do you feel like you're in control of the level of God's love and affection towards you? Is God that small for you? Because if I don't control those things, I don't determine the scope and the breadth of his love. If I can understand and get my mind around Jesus plus nothing else is enough. If that gets into me, it's going to change some things for me. It's going to come out in my behaviors. It's going to come out in my relationships. It's going to come out in the goals and the things I'm striving for. It's going to come out in how I raise my kids. It's going to come out in how I love my neighbors. It's going to come out on how I punish myself when I mess up. It's going to come out on how I feel about myself when confronted with my own humanity and my own failures. It's going to change some things. Because I keep trying to fill the thirst that's in me with other things to level off the scales a little bit. But Jesus is saying, hey, me and nothing else, and it's enough. That is enough. I got a video for you uh, set to a song, and here's what I'd like to do. It's going to play, and as it plays, here's just my challenge. I love, I, I kind of jumped over it, but it says that when she went back to town, she left her jar. And I was thinking about how successful, uh, uh, how important that is, that she left her jar behind, because she brought... What she thought she needed, but she left with what she really needed. Do you understand that? She left her jar behind. That was what she went up there for. She didn't even take a drink. She experienced the love of Jesus. And so I titled this message, What's in Your Jar? Because what, was thinking, what, was, what I was thinking about is we all have things that we think if we just have this, we'll be satisfied. If I just have enough money, if I'm just out of debt, if I just restore that relationship, if I just get one more relationship, if I just had the physical things I needed, if I just had the mental, the emotional, the financial things that I needed, the spiritual things, that if I just had it, that would be enough. And so we bring our jars trying to fill them. Trying to, you know, hey, pastor, please just fill my jar for me this week. Or, or you go to a relationship and you're just like, man, I hope this thing fills my jar. Meet my need. Whatever it is. But Jesus plus nothing else was enough. So this is a video. And, and it's just, you'll see, it's, it's a, several people and they don't realize they have an appointment 
with God, but they do. Take a look. First of all, just thank God for the Gideons who set defining moment appointments up for people all over the place, and we should just appreciate that ministry, and we do, but I mentioned earlier, sometimes the defining moment is just waiting for you to wake up and have a conversation with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I, uh, can I just invite you to stand? We're just going to pray, and we're, we're about done, and 
I, I want to just be transparent with you for a minute. I feel like I'm talking to a lot of different folks today. And some of us are in here and you heard this story and what's been stirring in your spirit is, yeah, I've had a relationship with Jesus, but I've sure been trying to fill the thirst that's in my life a lot of different ways. And it doesn't seem to satisfy. I was thinking about that first moment when I trusted Jesus to love me even though I felt unlovable. When I stepped out on faith and I said those words and meant them, Jesus, I want to invite you into my heart. I'm thinking about how I didn't really worry about too many other things in that moment. I wasn't concerned if my checkbook was always going to balance. I wasn't concerned, come on now, if everybody was going to like me or what they were going to think about me. I was just overwhelmed by the knowledge that the God of the universe intended for me to be here and cared enough about me to not only form me in my mother's womb, but have a plan and a purpose for my life. And that was enough. Jesus and nothing else was enough. Yet somehow we feel like we have to constantly help God get us to where we think we need to be. For some of us, we are veterans. And this truth is as timeless and we know it and we're trying to live it and we're just in that journey. And you know what happens to us veterans is we realize that we're pretty good at supplementing Jesus. So Jesus, you're enough and then I'll take it from here. Right? You're enough and then I'll, I'll, I'll grab the ball and run it over the end zone. I won't try to throw it in. Hey, you may never come back, but I'm so glad you're here today. I'll run it in, Jesus. I'll take the ball. I got it. And maybe... Maybe today is just a simple but heartfelt, honest reminder for you, you veteran you, that Jesus is still enough. He's put dreams in your heart and things that you need to get out of the boat and chase after and all those things are right. But if none of that thing ever came to fruition, he is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. It is okay that you are not perfect. You do not have to fake it here. Maybe for some of us, someone drug you in the building, promised you lunch afterwards, told you there'd be some good-looking folks here. Both of those things hopefully are true. But you got drug in, and you've never taken that step. You're like this Samaritan woman. This is a pretty new story that Jesus is inviting you into. But you see, the light's on now. So how are you going to deal with that? You're going to blink and shake it off? Or are you going to adjust because of this defining moment truth that the Savior of the world doesn't care where you've been. He knew where you were going to be before He created you. Doesn't care what you've done. Woo! He knew what you were going to do before he created you. How dare you think that you can determine how much God loves you by what you've done? How dare you limit my God that way? Lights on. How will you respond? Maybe for you today, it's simply just saying, you know what? 
God, it's like you're telling me everything I ever did. This guy's reading my laundry up there. I don't know why. Don't worry, I'm not going to read your laundry any more than that. But you simply need to respond and say, I need the living water. I've been, I've been bringing my jug. I try to fill it a bunch of different ways. It's not working out. I need the living water. Today, that is so practical and true for you. It's going to require just a little step of faith. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And maybe for you, it's the first time you've said that prayer or the first time in, in a long, long time. Or maybe the first time you've just meant that prayer. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. So here's what we're going to do. I don't believe that it's more spiritual to close your eyes than to have your eyes open when you pray. But it is more private. So I'm going to invite you just out of respect for everyone's privacy for just a moment to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And we're going to have a transparent moment with God because it's important, I believe, that we just respond to his word and to the truth of his word. So here's what I'd like you to do. If you're here and you just want to be honest, maybe you fit in any one of those three categories. I've just been trying to be Jesus and this instead of Jesus is enough. Or I've been journeying like God needs my health a little bit and I need to just be okay that he's enough. Or I just need to take that first step and say, I need the living water. I've never had that. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, no one's looking around, but just as a transparent moment, would you just lift a hand and say, yeah, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And then just so everyone's comfortable, I want to invite everyone to repeat this prayer. You know, if you don't want to repeat this prayer, that's okay. But I just want to invite everyone, wherever you're at, to repeat this prayer with me. Just say, Jesus you're enough for me. I pray that you would come into my heart. That you would be the living water that you promised to be. It's a gift that's given. So I choose to receive it. Forgive me for trying to quench my thirst other ways. From this point forward, Jesus is enough for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you give the Lord a hand this morning? He's enough. He's enough for you today. He'll be enough for you tomorrow. He'll be enough for you next week when the alarm goes off and you're trying to make a decision. Should you come to church? He'll be enough for you when you're at work and you're thinking about that relationship with someone that you want to have the conversation, the honest conversation. You want to push past the the safe conversation to the honest conversation. He's enough for you then. He'll be enough for you when you fail this week and you're feeling like, I can't make it. God won't love me. I tried and failed. He's enough for you then. Just like he's enough when you're walking in, in... in in success. He is enough for you and for me. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Um, A couple things to just put on your radar before you leave. Don't forget about the barbecue that's coming on the 30th, uh, where we're going to say thanks to uh, everyone who served or who plans on serving. That means all of us. And uh, and so don't forget about that on the 30th. Put that on your calendar so you don't forget. And then uh, I don't know where it came from. No one's told me yet. But there are blueberries up to our eyeballs out there that were donated and some things that have been donated. So grab as much as you can carry because anything that gets left here, I think Andrew will add it to the dart fight and there'll be a blueberry fight and the place will be crazy. No. All right. So just grab them, take them. Enjoy. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord. We'll see you next.